Well, good morning, church. How's everyone doing today? Good. You may have seen me hobbling around the fellowship this morning and wondered if I fell down the stairs or something over the weekend. I didn't, and that's actually what this is. I ran a Spartan race yesterday with my dad, which was pretty encouraging and or brutal. And you wonder, well, what is a Spartan race? Well, a Spartan race is you sign up for, you actually pay money, and they take you out into a remote place to kill you. You basically run around in the hills in some forsaken location for a couple hours, having to accomplish certain obstacles along the way. And for every obstacle you don't accomplish, it's a 30 burpee penalty. And so yesterday, my dad and I finished the longest, the hardest normal distance uh, called the Spartan Beast that was 13 and a half miles. Uh, And if you're wondering what my body feels like right now, imagine being in a seven hour long car accident and you'll have some kind of an idea. And you go, Chaz, why why would you sign up for this? Well, I'm I'm 30 and I still make poor decisions. But, you know, this actually did mark a milestone in a journey for my dad. You know, a, a couple years ago, my dad was diagnosed with high blood pressure. And the doctor wanted to give him medication for it. My dad, you know, refused, refused, refused. And the doctor said, well, you have to do something. Like, this, this isn't good for you. And so he started exercising and really wanting to get back in shape right around the time that I wanted to start. I started kind of wanting to start doing these races. And so it kind of became this really cool way that he and I had something special to do together and and bond together over. And I remember last December, we ran our very first race. It was actually at Castaic Lake, just up the five. And it was about four miles long in the hills with the obstacles and the burpees. And and I remember my dad almost died. Like, it was like having to drag his, you know, limp body across the finish line is what it felt like. And I remember as we talked about it, there's this thing that if you do all three distances of the race in one calendar year... They call it, you've accomplished the trifecta. And you, you join what they call the trifecta tribe. And you get a patch and the medals. Besides the, the one medal you get per race, each medal comes with like a little pie sliver of another medal. And when you get all three, they magnetize together to form your trifecta. And so my dad was like, son, we've got to do it. And I'm like, well, dad, do you know how long the distances are? And he's like, no, I have no idea. So we did the four mile. My dad is like, you know, we're laying in the car. My dad can barely move. He's 58. And I go, well, the next one is eight miles. And then the one after that is like 13 miles. And I remember my dad for so long was like wanted to do it. But there was such a fear there, a terrified fear of the idea of doing two or three times as much as what we did that day. But with a lot of encouragement and a lot of help and a lot of training, We were able yesterday to complete the trifecta, which was exciting. Now, why is that important and or relevant? Well, if I fall down and start cramping up during the lesson, you'll know why. But also because all of us wrestle with fear in our lives. And it can be something insignificant or something gigantic. And so today what we're going to be looking at is the story of a prophet who was called by God, but needed a lot of help overcoming his fear. And yet even so was able to have tremendous impact. If you'll turn with me to the book of Jonah, 
title of the lesson today is very simply Jonah. There you go. I thought that was fitting. And you know, the book of Jonah is interesting because of all the prophets, right? You, you look at Isaiah or Jeremiah, all of these men in the Bible who were called by God to preach to his people. Their books are full of just that. They're preaching to the people. Jonah is very interesting in that it's not so much a book of prophecy so much as it is a book about the prophet and about what Jonah went through. And this is interesting because in so many of these other books, what we learn about Jeremiah or Isaiah or Daniel, you kind of have to read between the lines to figure out who these men were, what they were going through. With Jonah, it's just laid out right in front of us. And so my first point this morning is you've got to stay engaged. And for those of you who know what movie this is from, kudos to you. You've got to stay engaged. In Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain said to him, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and of course, the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Probably shouldn't have done that. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked, what should we do to you? To make the sea calm down for us. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. And now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. You know, this is an incredible story. If nothing else, one of the all-time classic children's ministry stories. Right. When you think of all the stories in the Bible that you maybe heard of growing up in church, any church. Right. You're thinking, okay, David and Goliath, for sure. Daniel and the lion's den. 
of course, Noah in the ark and Jonah in the belly of the whale. If you think about that, three of those stories are victories and one is not. Right. You never really like, wow, that's that's not a victor, victorious story. Like he he was running away from God when he got in the belly of the fish. It's the only story that's not explicitly like full of courage and all kinds of excitement. Right. Instead, he's running away. And there's this fear in Jonah that has him refusing or questioning God's call. Now, what's interesting about this is as you actually look at these Old Testament prophets, the ones that we hold in such high regard, it's interesting to see how they respond when they were first called. Let's take a look at that. You've got Ezekiel, right, called by God to be a watchman over the nation. And in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, it says, The Spirit lifted me up right after at the end of his vision where he's called by God. And took me away, and I went in bitterness and in the anger of my spirit with the strong hand of the Lord on me. I came to the exiles who lived at Tel Aviv, near the Kibar River, and there, where they were living, I sat among them for a week. Seven days, deeply distressed. I, I literally, I had this incredible vision where God called me to be a watchman over the nation. What did I do? I went and I found these people by the river, and I sat down for a week. I was just discouraged. Okay, uh, I get that, Ezekiel. Not the best start. All right, let's, let's try Jeremiah. Jeremiah, called to be a prophet to the nations. In verse, in chapter 1 and verse 4, Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord said, Do not say to me, I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you. Jeremiah, oh, oh, uh, God, I'm too young. I can't do this. I don't even know how to speak. It's like, dude, you're speaking to me right now. What are you talking about? Right? He's kind of trying to slide his way out of that. Okay, what's going on here, Jeremiah? And finally, Moses, called to lead Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt. And when he's called by God, you know, he goes through a couple different conversational pieces here. But in chapter 4 and verse 13... Moses just says, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. Like, Lord, please not me. (laughs) Okay. You can see as we look at these legendary prophets, man, when they were first called, they weren't exactly jumping for joy either. Right? We see two common things in all four of these stories. One, that God's call was larger than life and scary impossible. Right? Jonah called to preach to Nineveh, one of the most wicked cities, right? The capital of Assyria, one of the most brutal cultures in the ancient world. Scary impossible. And number two, that the person called was completely overwhelmed by the task that God was calling them to. Right? Jonah ran. Moses said someone else. Jeremiah came. I don't know how to talk. That's like the weakest excuse I've ever heard. Right? And Ezekiel sat down for seven days distressed i mean you look at jonah was in good company right when he was initially called by god and as much as we can feel these things we're in good company when we feel them being called by god it is an absolute prerequisite of being used by god to feel overwhelmed scared and humbled you should feel those things when god is calling you 
Because it's no different for us. We are called to no less than impossible tasks by God. You go, I, I don't, I don't, I wasn't ever called to be a prophet to the nations. Well, let's just go through a couple of them together. If you're studying the Bible right now, or for any of us who studied the Bible, if you boil down what that looks like to become a disciple, Basically, in reading the Bible, God is telling you that you've got to give up your entire way of life. The way that you thought, the way that you felt, the way you used to do things, your old habit of decision making, control of your life, everything you used to do. You've got to give all of that up so that God can tell you a completely new way of living life. You've got to step out from everything you've ever known completely into the unknown. Without God, that's pretty impossible. That's, that's a pretty tall order. Right? If you're a single man or woman this morning, God is calling you to live a pure life, free from sexual sin and the immorality that the rest of the world is throwing itself into. You're called to be an excellent student without being consumed by school. Called to be an excellent employee without being consumed by your job. Without God, that's an impossible task. That's a tall order. And finally, if you're married today, God is calling you to be faithful to your spouse for life. To cherish your spouse in a thriving marriage and to lead them to God and heaven. As the divorce rate of the world will tell you, without God, this is an impossible task. All of us are called to the impossible by God. And I want you to think about even this morning, what are the impossible situations that are facing you right now? Maybe in your Bible studies, the one thing that you feel like you can't give up or move past or let go of. The one thing in your finances that you feel like it's impossible. We're never going to get through this. In your family, with your relatives, with your siblings, your mom, your dad, your spouse. What is the one thing? Maybe in just your relationships with other people. The conversations you know you need to have. But in your mind, there's no possible way it's going to go well. What are the impossible things that we are facing today? Because whatever you do, you must not run. That is the one thing that separated all of those prophets from Jonah. Was that they stayed engaged with God. Jonah ran and separated himself out. These prophets, they wrestled with God. They explained to God all the reasons why this was a bad idea. Right? Think of Gideon. God, you're telling me that I have to go to war against a large army with jars and torches. And 300 men. This is a horrible idea. Right? Moses, I don't know how to talk. I'm not eloquent. I'm not royal. No one will listen to me. Goes through every reason. And God stayed engaged with them and gave them everything they needed. Fought through every one of their insecurities, every one of their concerns to give them the encouragement, the faith, the trust, anything they needed to stand and face what they were doing. But when we run away, we cut ourselves off 
from any chance of great victory. And that's exactly what happened to Jonah. He let his fear lead him instead of his faith. And whether it was the fear of failure, the fear of himself, or even the fear that he might succeed, it dominated his decision making. You've got to think, man, even running for us, that doesn't always mean like doing the equivalent of what Jonah did. You go, well, I don't run. Well, I mean, maybe you didn't charter a boat to Mexico and like run away from your life. Like, okay. But running for us, it can be something so simple as just numbing out with social media or television instead of dealing with what's really going on in your life. Numbing out with substances, alcohol, food, instead of dealing with what's going on in your life with God. Even things that can seem like good or healthy. I go to the gym when I'm stressed. But is it because you don't want to face those things with God? Are you running this morning? Because the scary thing is that when you let your fear lead your decisions, it doesn't just affect you. Right? With Jonah, we saw this. It affected all of the sailors that were on the boat. It had a direct impact on what was happening to them. And we've got to know that when we allow ourselves and our decision-making, our lives, to be led by fear, that affects our kids. That affects our spouses, that affects our friends, that affects our families, the people that we're trying maybe to reach out to, to share your faith with. What do you think that says when they see your life being led by fear? We are not a people who are led by fear. Because the same is true when your life and your decisions are led by faith. How inspiring is it when you see someone make decisions that make absolutely no logical sense, but they're stepping out on faith and they're trusting that God is going to make up the difference? How moving is that? The curiosity that that stirs in the people around you when they look at you and they go, I cannot explain why you are doing what you're doing or why it's working. I run all the time. Tell me what you're doing. Tell me how this is going on. We have got to fight to be men and to be close to the men and women that God has put in our life to guide us. They're there for a reason. Right? Everyone in this room was specifically handpicked by God to be here, right here, and right now. You've got to think that even that brother in your Bible talk or even that sister in your married group that just grinds on your nerves maybe has been handpicked by God to be in your life for a reason. Are we turning to them? Are we leaning on them? Letting them, humbling ourselves to let them guide us. Are we wrestling with God in prayer? To get our hearts where it needs to be that we can trust that God is going to make it happen. That God is going to make it work. He wants to give us the reassurance, the encouragement, everything we need to take our stand. The only times we don't get it are when we're running. If you're feeling like, man, I I have had an impossible task put in front of me and I feel so ill-equipped to do it, maybe you need to look at if you've been staying in the pocket or not. 
You know, I, I look at different workouts and all the time. I'm, I'm always talking to Nathan. I'm talking to Ryan. We're trading, you know, different things, especially in light of all these races. And I was looking at different boxing workouts just because that's great cardio. You know, a lot of people can do that. And there was one drill that they would do that I found that I was just blown away by. Because in boxing, you know, so much of it is not just your punching power, but it's your timing. It's your distance. It's your ability to close the gap and throw some punches and then get back out and all these things. But there are times in boxing where you find yourself in the pocket, standing within punching range, and you stay there. Now, when you're outside, when you're at a distance, you know, you can kind of collect yourself because you're out of range. Like, you're not in danger of being punched. But to spend most of the fight where you're within arm's reach is scary. And few boxers do that because it's such a tense place. Your reactions have got to be so fast. And one of the ways they drill this is they take one of these big tires and they put it on the ground and they put two guys, you know, okay, you guys are going to spar and they each have to have a leg in the tire and you can't take your leg out. And so you spend the whole drill, the whole round, all five minutes or whatever of this drill standing within like where you're leaning against this person practically and it, they force you to be comfortable in the pocket. Are we staying in the pocket with God when it comes to these tough decisions? Got to ask yourself, man, do I have my foot in the tire with God or am I stepping back out of range? Am I collecting myself? Am I staying where it's safe? We can't live there. In Second Peter chapter 1, in verse 3, it says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through His knowledge of Him who called us by His glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Right? Peter says, God has given us everything We need to make it through life if we will just stay in the pocket and wrestle with God. You know, Jonah eventually got there, but it was because God loved him enough to chase him down. And the same is true for us. God will chase you down if you're staying out of the pocket, out of love. It won't be like a, you know, a Friday the 13th chase you down. It's a, it's a loving chase you down. He will chase you down because he loves you to help you work through these things. But let's not wait for the fish. Amen. Let's stay engaged with God because even in our fear, point number two, a little goes a long way. In Jonah chapter three, and this is the, the actual gate to the ancient city of Nineveh which I just thought was really cool and is going to apply here. In Jonah chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Right In chapter 2, Jonah prays. He kind of gets his heart right. The fish throws him up on the land. And here we are. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. So Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. 
a fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. You know, a lot of interesting things we see here. So Jonah spends some time with God, right, in the fish. He's praying. He's trying to get himself there. And he gets to this place, at the very least, of reluctant willingness to do what God has commanded. And you go, well, Chaz, this doesn't look like reluctant willingness. Well, let me just point out a few things, right? He goes to the city. God says, proclaim what I say. He goes to the city and he preaches a message. Forty more days and then the city of Nineveh will be overturned. Can anyone think of some things that he didn't mention in that sermon? He didn't mention what their sin was. He didn't tell them how they should repent. He didn't even mention God. Right? Jonah shows up in the original Hebrew. His whole lesson is five words. That feels like kind of the bare minimum sermon that you can do that you can still call it technically preaching. I mean, Jonah shows up with this attitude, preaches his five words. And it's kind of like, OK, here we go. See what happens now. I don't know about you, but I can relate to the feeling of, the, of this reluctant willingness where you feel like, OK, you know what? There is not a single part of me that wants to do what you're saying. But you know what, bro? I love God. And so I'll do what you're asking. But I I just want you to know that, man, I'm really, really carrying my cross with this one. (laughs) Right? It's like the, the worst possible. It's that when you go and you ask someone to serve or like help clean up or something and they go, ooh, bro, you know what? Uh, I don't know if I can do that, but so why don't you go and ask a few more people? And if absolutely no one can do it, then come back and I'll help you out. That is the most like cowardly way of just saying no that like ever happened. Right. You're like that brother. Like, ooh, actually, you know what? Uh, my plants need watering. But if uh, you're uh, no one, the service is just going to be let. Oh, I mean, I don't want the church to. All right. OK, if if everyone leaves and I'm the last person here, sure, I'll help you take down the sound. It's like, what? How do you have this attitude? And it's funny because I had this attitude for. I mean, I remember the very first time I ever was asked to do anything of responsibility in the campus ministry. I remember it was because our Bible talk leader, I was the Bible talk assistant And the Bible talk leader, who was my good friend, was going to South Africa for a one-year challenge. And he came to me and he goes, bro. And I was one of like four guys in the the ministry. All of them were Bible talk leaders or something because out of necessity. And he goes, bro, 
So I'm going to uh, I'm going to South Africa and this Bible talk, we, we need it to stay like stay together. We can't assimilate it into the other ones. They'll be too big. We need someone to step up and you've been my assistant. So I really want you to lead this Bible talk. And I was like, "Ooh, bro, mm. it was that same thing. Like, mm, I don't know. I haven't I didn't really have a great quiet time today. I, you know, mm, I didn't spend a lot of time with God, you know, and I started making all of these excuses as to why I couldn't do it. And he goes, well, bro, we literally have no one else. <sighs> bro, let me pray about it. <laughs> and so then our evangelist comes over and he sits down with me and he goes, hey, I heard Sam, you know, asked you to be a Bible talk leader and there are no other men. And you said you'd pray about it. Well, yeah, I'm just not ready for that kind of responsibility. I don't know if I can do these things. And he goes, okay, well, I, I totally get that. You know, can you can you just do me a favor? Well, yeah, I can do you a favor, Steve. He goes, I just need you every week. Can you just call so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so? You know, he gave me like four or five names. Can you just call them every week? I, I'm kind of worried about them. Can you just make sure that they're going to be at midweek and make sure that they're going to be at Friday and there on Sunday? Yeah, I can call them. And can you can you make sure that they just spend time, you know, together like at least once a week? I really need you to to like see to it. Like you, you've got to be there with them. Yeah, I can do that. He goes, okay, cool. You're a Bible talk leader. <laughs> no! How did this happen? I was tricked. It was like he broke it down and he did it so smoothly. It was like one of the most finessed moves I've ever seen in ministry. And then I woke up one day and I was in the full-time ministry. I'm like, how did this happen? <laughs> you know, but it, it blows me away that even in those moments, right, when our attitude is a hot mess, when it's just funky and unwilling and reluctant, and you kind of just give the absolute bare minimum to God, how he will take that and just blow it up times a million and how convicted we can feel afterwards going wow i'm just what was i thinking i mean jonah shows up preaches five words again doesn't even tell them how to repent doesn't mention anything about god and yet what's the heart of the people everyone the entire nation which we're told later is 120,000 people they all are like, oh my gosh, we've got to give up our evil ways and we've got to give up our sin. Quick, we're going to declare a fast. Who knew how to do that? Like, what should we do, guys? I heard about fasting. We're doing that. Like, quick, do we have anything uncomfortable? Yes, sackcloth. Okay, sackcloth on everybody. What about those cows? Yes, sackcloth the cows too. Like, they're going to suffer too. They need to repent. They did something bad. I don't know what. Like, right here, at the entire nation, five words. The king takes off his robes. This was the most, one of the most brutal empires of the day. Some of the most ruthless people. Israel's greatest enemy. I mean, they would destroy Israel and the temple and take everyone into captivity in the years to come. And yet five reluctant words. And it just explodes. And God completely relents from destroying this city because of their sin. You know, there was a brother, a very dear brother of mine that we studied the Bible with when I was in Orange County. 
Uh, he was a, a junior college student. We sat down, and he was incredible. He was this guy that you meet, and you go, how, how, how did this happen? He was a hard worker. He had great character. He was punctual. He, I mean, he was working a full-time job, putting himself through full-time, you know, as a student. Like, just seemed like, wow, this guy has really, he's an 18-year-old who's got everything on. Like, he's making moves in his life. He had a car that he was making payments on, on time. His finances were balanced. It, this was incredible. And we're digging, and we're like, okay, we've got to figure out, what is this guy's thing? Because everyone has a thing, right? What is this guy's thing? And so we start asking him about his family and how everything's going. He goes, well, I live with my aunt. And I go, oh, well, where, where's your, where are your parents at? And he goes, well, I haven't spoken to my mom in probably 10 years. Wow, what happened? He goes, well, there was just, there was so much going on in my family, so much about my family, my siblings, my mom, uh, specifically because I think dad was out of the picture. He goes, so much of my mom in my teenage years and, you know, kind of, that I resented about her, that I basically I, I moved out of my house. I called up my aunt. I moved in with her, and I've cut my mom and the rest of my family just out of my life because I feel so hurt by them. I have so much bitterness and hatred and resentment towards how they treated me growing up. Wow. Okay. So we start going through these Bible studies, and as soon as we got to, you know, mercy and forgiveness like i knew as soon as he opened his mouth and started talking about this i knew okay this is the guy's thing and so of course we do the sin study and he's willing to give up all his sin he's willing to walk away from this immoral relationship that he's been with this girl for like a year he's willing to completely cut let go of everything cut out drunkenness and partying and cut back his hours at work so he can make meetings of the body and i like knew and so the brothers and i were praying and we sit down in this bible study and i go bro Okay, so there's one thing that you have to do left. You, you have to forgive your mom. You, I can't, you will not be a disciple of Jesus. You've got all this hatred towards your family, even if everything else in your life is perfect. And it was a battle. We were in this Bible study for maybe an hour, and he was just, no, like so much anger. I mean, it just all started coming out, all the hurt. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know all of these things. He said, I'm not going to do this. I will never do this. I can't. I'm not going. I mean, just. And so we go, bro, just pray about it. Like, just go home. Think about it. Pray about it. Fine. Kind of goes off. Gets in his new car and drives away. And so we, I, I looked at all the guys. I said, guys, we've got to pray for him right now. And so we just sat there and we just started praying. And we set up another time, you know, like four, three or four days later. Set up time with him. And like two days later, he calls us. And he goes, hey, can we get together? Can we do the next Bible study? Like, well, sure, let's get together. But we're not going to move forward until this is a big thing. And so we get together and he goes, so I called my mom. Really? So we start asking him. He goes, yeah, honestly, I was so angry. I think I called her like out of anger. Like I was just I was all over the place and I was praying about it and I was thinking about it. And I was my plan was just to call her, tell her I forgive her and then just hang up. Like he, it was like it's the worst. Like I would have made you call her back. Like, do you understand this? But so he calls her and, you know, gets on the phone and he just starts venting. 
all of the things that he's been angry about for all of these years. And I've been feeling this and you did this and I've been, you know, this and that. And he's, and he's just going off. And in the course of all of this, of him talking to her and her listening, she didn't say anything. She was listening the whole time. Something started to move. And he gets to the very end and he gets to that little reluctant shred. And he goes, Mom, I just want you to know that I forgive you. And she just starts weeping on the phone. Like just crying her eyes out incoherently. And starts apologizing for everything. And taking responsibility. And just telling him how much she loves him. And telling him how much she's missed him. And and just pouring. And then he, I'm getting emotional. And then he starts crying. And he, and then he's just, and they, the phone, they end up talking on the phone for like three hours. Just catching up on the last 10 years of their lives that they've been apart. And so he's telling, and we're all, so he's telling us all this, we're all crying. And then he ends up becoming, you know, getting baptized, becoming a disciple, starts spending the holidays with his mom, now has this whole repaired relationship with his mom and his siblings and their family again. And I look at that and I go, man, one little reluctant shred is all it takes. And, God, and he even said, he said, bro, I, I went into it with such a bad heart and I feel so convicted by what God did. What are the little reluctant shreds that we could do? What are the areas that God could just blow up in our lives today if we had even that little reluctant shred? Now, I will say God doesn't want you to live in the reluctant shreds. Amen. God doesn't want your attitude to be an attitude forever of reluctant willingness, of bare minimum attitude. But God will use those moments to blow you away. And he'll use those moments to soften your heart. And he'll use those moments to change everything. This guy's entire world, the whole nation of Nineveh, was completely changed on this one moment. Let's be a church. Let's be a family that stays engaged with God. Let's be one that moves beyond the reluctant little shreds, that we see where God will take a little and go a long way, that we could have our hearts and our attitudes changed, that we could see even greater things than these done with wholehearted effort. Amen? Amen. That is the lesson for today.